I'm Angie Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymaker Story Show. Adam Wolpert is a painter who just completed a full 12-month cycle of paintings, representing different times of day, months, and season, all in the same size, in the same composition, same view. That view is of a pond on the land where he lives, the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, which he co-founded in 1994. A passionate artist from an early age, Wolpert explored the media of performance, ceramics, sculpture, and collage before turning seriously to painting while earning his BFA from the University of California, Santa Barbara. After a rigorous two-year training in classical realism at the studio Cecile Grave in Florence, <laughs> I don't know. It might be Cecile Grave. Cecile Cecil Grave. <laughs> uh, in Florence, Italy. That's where- Florencia. Firenze. Firenze, yes. Uh, Where he immersed himself in the work of great European masters, and Wolpert completed an MFA at UC San Diego. He's had major gallery representations since 1988, including many solo exhibitions and group shows, and 18 years with the Jan Baum Gallery in Los Angeles. We know Adam because our kids go to school together in Sebastopol. Notice he just became Adam instead of Wolpert. Well, yeah. Because we know him. From school. <laughs> uh, when he started a beautiful and precise blog about the creative process and the project of developing a series of paintings, it struck us that Adam belonged as a guest on the Storymakers show with much insight to offer all Storymakers. On a technical note, because we're in the country, you'll hear someone riding their high weed mower briefly in the background. It doesn't last long, but we wanted to let you know just how rural we are in this episode. We went right to Adam's beautiful Occidental studio, and you'll hear you'll hear the paintings there with us. <laughs> uh, we also wanted to mention that we'll be teaching two one-day workshops on the same weekend up here in wine country this summer, also rural. Uh, and we'd love for you to join us in person or virtually. Check out the Book Writing World offerings at bookwritingworld.com forward slash classes and we're selling out fast so don't delay go check it out and enjoy the show so first of all thank you for having us here in your beautiful um painting space i guess it's called a studio atelier but um yeah we're sitting surrounded by adam's series of paintings you've been painting these for a year now a year now yeah pond series amazing we actually start with talking about what we're each working on right now, and maybe we'll start and then segue into you, which will In case lead. you don't know what you're working on. Well, it's more <laughs> to <laughs> lead into the long... I'm starting to write about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, um, I am trying to finish up that screenplay. I got a chance to talk with Sadie, who is doing the music for the film that I'm working on. So, that has been exciting, um, but mostly that's the focus right now. Just finishing it. Finishing that screenplay, then starting on a lookbook, so yeah. Cool. Um, I went through and edited my manuscript for the however many millionth time, and now I'm inputting those changes, and it's really fun, actually. It's just, oh, that's me. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the fun part, although I, I see the, the mountains in the distance as I go. Adam, what are you working yeah, on? Yeah, <laughs> and I am shifting. I'm just at the moment of shift. So I'm finishing this one year, really uh, quite intense commitment of in this relationship that I've been in with this tree, this view. <laughs> what was the commitment? 
Well, I was I made myself a commitment to paint the same view at the same scale, um, the same composition for twelve months, and yeah. So painting this one view for a year and um, painting a, about five paintings a month, so it's sixty sixty one paintings in the end. And it's really also been a, 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 a very um, um, study in place and local, a commitment to being local and being in place. And so right now I'm finishing that and I'm doing it right before I go off to Esalen for a month to, to uh, work with this group down there. And then um, Katie, my wife, and I are going to England for three weeks. So... I'm kind of going from this like very small place to a big place. And so creatively speaking, I think I'm engaging that part of the creative process where you where you shift, where you take another step. And all these questions are coming up around succession and progression and hmm. taking the next step and diving into the mystery and you know, how calculated should one be about that and all that. Mm. So, so yeah. light stuff. Yeah, light yeah. stuff. <laughs> light, breezy stuff. <laughs> Time, mortality. <laughs> you know. Like you do. Yeah. Well, and, and just, I mean, so, and then I really want to delve into all of that. And you write, you have a blog as well. We'll talk about and You write so beautifully. And about, we will link to it in the show notes. Yes. Oh, and you write so beautifully you. about the creative process. But to just, I don't even know how much of a shift, if it's a wild leap or a small shift, but to shift to, how about the element of audience? How about, like, what about this mm. project that's drawing to a close? Is it, is, does it have a next step that is in your mind? Yeah, it really does. It really has to. I, I've, I've also, it's funny, all this word commitment keeps coming up. But yeah, so I didn't really know what I was doing for the first six months. And I didn't think about this as one piece. I wasn't thinking that way. Because uh, I've never done that. I've never done a series that is a piece of art. I've only done series of paintings that relate to one another and you could show them together, but you sell them separately, usually. And about four months ago, yeah, and I wrote about this on my mm-hmm. blog, I, I, I had this realization that this is one thing, that this whole cycle is this one, one piece and I feel really like I have to keep it together and show it as one piece. Mm. And, um, and that's already kind of coming up as this weird thing. I've had a few collectors come into the studio and they're interested in certain paintings. And so I've, you know, it's a classic artist, right? You come up with these crazy ideas, these challenges, and then you engage these challenges and they have all these unexpected consequences. So now I have 60 paintings that I'm keeping together mm-hmm. and I'm looking for venue and I've started talking to people um, about that and I'm I feel pretty committed to at least once you know showing the whole cycle in a venue uh, hopefully a non-commercial venue where um, it could almost be a chapel like mm-hmm. uh, meditation on time and change mm-hmm. and relationship and place and depth and this kind of because so, there's something about just staring at a year of time reflected in these paintings that for me increasingly is 
getting at this core paradox. And and we have a lot of cliches in our language, you know, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So is that the core paradox? <laughs> yeah, that's that core paradox of the the um kind of repetitive, consistent quality that life has. Every day there's another day, you know. <laughs> and then also this sort of incredible uniqueness that every moment has and how everything is new and everything is fresh and when you paint like this for 12 months mm. 60 paintings none of them are in any way the same as anyone else you know they're totally different mm-hmm. but and but somebody could walk in here and say wow you've been doing the same thing over and over again well <laughs> i you know i was sort of curious from kind of that going deeper place when you've set those limits i'm always fascinated by creative constraint mm-hmm. and what happens in that and so you've set very clear limits for yourself around this particular project so same composition same location you know what gets stripped away what do you get to get to when you've made those decisions ahead of time? Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I mean, it's like a marriage. And I mean, I think you could say that about marriage. You know, when you get married, so obviously you stop, you know, playing the field and dating and seeing lots of different people. Most people do. And then the question is, so what? what is there at that depth? Mm-hmm. And the first thing I encountered, and maybe this is surprising, is freedom. Mm-hmm. It's just an extraordinary freedom, you know. All the energy that goes into choosing the subject and composing the subject, and just choice-itis, just all these choices. And the choices upon choices, and, you know, if you're a privileged artist in the sense that you have access to materials and you, you can work at scale if you want, not everyone can do that, but if you can do that, the the choices are I mean it's almost infinite you know mater- choice of materials and scale and everything and to take all of that off the table and say all of that is figured out and now I'm going into you know what's left to decide and I find this just enormous freedom in that like in this series of paintings there's a bigger swing in um, technique. In, in degree of finish, mm-hmm. um, in in the uh, brushwork. I mean, there's a much much more variety, much more diversity mm-hmm. than there would be if I had done sixty paintings as I did maybe last year or the year before the, of different subjects. Were were those different choices called forth from the moment in the day and standing there, or were they also kind of? Could, different chosen constraints for that painting they really were called forth from the moment and and that's and that's another thing I find a parallel between um, this and human relationship where if you're really in a deep relationship with another human being you can be present in this whole other way because you're not you're not uh, holding up a facade Mm -hmm. you know you're, you're in relationship, and so hopefully, if it's a good relationship, you are more and more real, you're more and more present and honest. Mm-hmm. And in that present, honest realness, there's so much discovery. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to meet some mark or, mm-hmm. you know, um, you have an image and an expectation that you need to, to uh, conform to, 
then you there's a shallowness in that. I mean, there's a uh, you have to turn away from a lot from things that don't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I think a lot of artists really are frustrated by that, mm-hmm. by having these impulses that just don't fit the body of work or don't fit the identity that you brand. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so you're kind of like, oh well. You know, I think most artists have something in the closet that they pull out and say, I really love this, but I don't show it because it doesn't fit my thing. Right, mm. right. right. Like you, if you were to do sort of a neon purple gorilla foot kind of thing. Exactly. Like a coffee table. <laughs> How did yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or what? What would yours be? Yeah. Well, um, what would mine be? What's in your artist's closet? <laughs> well, one of the things is a lot of figure work. Mm-hmm which is sort of odd, because there's nothing um, radical about painting the figure. But I've often felt like my figurative work doesn't really have a place in the the flow of the other work. Um, I think lots and lots of visual artists um, have done a lot of erotic work that you never get to see and then they die and you see it you know Rodin's erotic drawings were amazing and Turner's erotic work you know uh, you know was very controversial and I think that's an uh, that's an example you know the whole idea of having something in the closet (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I have to say as I was reading through and you know looking at the different things we noticed um that you had tried on a variety of artistic approaches before settling on painting looked like and um so I was curious and also that you have a background in philosophy that's the other piece right philosophy and art and so I was curious about what about a little kid in LA brings him to philosophy and art yeah wow well my dad is a uh, Indian historian Mm. and um the story goes that the only way they could put me to sleep when I was crying as a two-year-old was by chanting Sanskrit, um, <laughs> in which he was fluent, and very few people read and write Sanskrit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was I was initiated into the philosophical and spiritual traditions of the East as a child through his work, and he was he's a, was not was is a. Um, a very serious academic. He wrote the Oxford History of India. He's really into um, an academic approach that was more characteristic and, and familiar to us in the 50s and 60s than it is now after postmodernism and a whole change in the way history is told and written. But um, I think there really has been um, a deep impact on my whole life, you know, streaming from those early experiences. And it wasn't that he, I'd come down to breakfast and he'd be meditating in the living room. <laughs> um, he was writing books, you know, right. but it was exposure to the ideas. Mm. And yeah, and so I think living in my house in LA, that field was more, in, influenced me more than, than the LA Field, which was mostly about show business, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. But I, I never wanted to um, seek success on the sort of standard terms of the society. That never really drew me. Fame, mm-hmm. you know, or like a big...
I think I was always much more um, nature-oriented. And uh, from a pretty early age, I started to really spend as much time as I could in nature. And, and, that, and now, one of the things about painting that I'm curious about is the, the relationship between nature and culture or, um, you know, one's, one's personal expression mm-hmm. and um, one's capacity or to or connection with some, some kind of greater relationship with the whole sphere of life. Because um, I think art can connect us to that wholeness. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I also think art can be all about person's ego or their, um, not ego in a bad way, uh, just their individualness mm-hmm. and their remarkable uniqueness, <laughs> which can be super stimulating and sexy and, or, or gripping or, you know, challenging. <laughs> um, but it's not, it's not necessarily where I go, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I you know, I, I remember reading that artists in sort of the Middle Ages or sort of an early Christianity would not sign their works because they were kind right. of in a, in a, it was bringing the ego in an inappropriate way. And so it was interesting that you're sitting here at this point and you're saying, I'm not seeking fame, I'm not seeking these things. I'm looking at this kind of larger, more mm-hmm. spiritual path and mm-hmm. approach with your work. Yeah, and I think there are, there are many... Um, social environments I mean throughout history where the individual the individual's trip whatever it may be was just not foreground I mean it just mm-hmm. wasn't it couldn't be very it, often I mean yeah it couldn't be it couldn't be or or it wasn't because that just wasn't considered terribly interesting um, in the big scheme of things mm-hmm. and, I, and I do think that now the individuality of our culture and the way we um, almost worship a very small circle of individuals mm-hmm. and everybody else is kind of you know relegated to the spectator to the stands uh, like what is that about what does that mean I don't, I'm not sure what that is about mm-hmm. what do you think that's about um I think that it's probably been true to some extent. I mean, we know the Pope's names at the times that these people weren't signing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think there's always been a sort of social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think that we're sort of at a place where I think we get increasingly disconnected from natural processes in, mm-hmm. in the way that we live so that we can really sort of disconnect from each other. I mean, we talked about like the birth process and we've talked about this before. You know, you've used the phrase, it's the most animal thing that we kind of encountered, you know, up to that point. And we have sort of the ability... parenting, really. Yeah, well, parenting, but the whole thing, like that's... Well, it was, it was, it was the most... Children of, crapping it was the on manual. <laughs> But for me, it was like the... It was a, man, a form of manual labor that at least we didn't outsource yeah. very much. <laughs> um, you know, in the way that almost every other aspect of manual labor, you know... sustaining feeding ourselves all those things I mean maybe not cooking but like you know growing all that has has been kind of farmed out to other people Um, but I also I also feel like there's you know we 
individual little people <laughs> have like a have this strong identification, especially Americans with with these sort of few celebrities and this myth that we're all kind of going to become, I mean, trying to become famous, right? That that's, mm -hmm. that somehow success is, is becoming one of these people. So I think that that's part of it is this, or is that myth. an avoidance of death. Because why would you really want to be famous? The only idea, but why, what's the value of being famous? Aside from, I mean, the historical thing is my name will go on after I die. That's how people have traditionally seen it. And then maybe also parenting. <laughs> but maybe you know as we get further away from sort of the high you know infant mortality rates and things like that people are looking for other ways to not stop existing mm. yeah I think that's definitely part of it I mean there's the obvious stuff of just getting all the goodies well yes you know, yeah. all, you know the backstage pass whatever and there's that <laughs> I mean there's that dimension and then I, you know, I, I do think that maybe we have this, there's a truth of life on the planet, which is that it's connected in this network and that wholeness is a fact. I mean, it's one planet and the web of life is, is real. And the more science, scientists uh, uh, discover and study the intricate, tiny subwebs, you know, the mycelial webs and the, the webs of bacteria in your gut. And, you know, the more we understand how connected it really all is, the more I think we're challenged when we um, deny that connection, you know, when, when we assert the kind of fragmented thinking that's so characteristic of our society, mm -hmm. where... Um, we separate a thing from the process that uh, gave birth to that thing. Uh, a Nike tennis shoe exists in the society in an urban environment with no connection whatsoever to the process that created that thing. The children. And if you, can, if you can associate that tennis shoe with the process that created it, you, you blow up the, the illusion. I mean, you can't, you can't hold that tennis shoe up as a as an inner city status symbol, if it's fully and completely connected to the process it, it, that created it and the toxic chemicals and all the rest of it, you know, so I think there's this tension between embracing wholeness and the wonder of connectedness on the one hand, which I think are we're kind of moving toward that, mm -hmm. and, and certainly in the information age dimension mm -hmm. of that, we're, we're learning more and more about it. But then on the other hand, we've got this whole society, especially the cultural uh, expressions of our society, um, that is still really fragmented. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's this tension that uh, I think, I think art, often ends up playing into one side or the other. You know, it, it's either really supporting wholeness or it's really you know, pushing that sense of fragmentation. It's you funny. It's, well, it's funny that you have these 60 paintings that you want to keep together, you know, wholeness. in this mm -hmm. moment. I wanted to ask you, do these paintings tell a story? Yeah, I think they do in very broad terms. I mean, I think they tell the story of a human being's capacity to connect to place um, in authentically, 
I didn't do this because I, you know, someone was holding a gun to my head, or because I was I, I I I was hungry and I could I could eat if I did this. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, this is all about love, really, and um, so one of the stories is that you can actually walk outside and look at a unexceptional little willow tree by an unexceptional ag pond (laughs) and um, be thrilled and delighted for 12 months and probably the rest of my life. Um, So that's a story, I think. Um, I I think maybe that relational thing is the most interesting story it tells. Mm-hmm. I mean, you work in sequence, even with the last set of, of paintings where you have this series of six fairly yeah. distinct images, right? Yeah. You're juxtaposing them, and in a way, that's that story, I think, is mm-hmm. the... Mm-hmm. Well, I think two things that are relevant to the painting. One is that I think in story, in writing, certainly, um, landscape is where the meaning and the emotion gets developed in setting. a in a yeah set, setting in a in a written story so so because you're 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 seeing it through a character's perspective or and, you know John Gardner has this f- famous exercise where he says write about a man um walk, looking at a barn whose son has just been killed in the war but don't mention death or w- the war or, or the son, son. <laughs> but it's but it's that thing it's like so you could you know it's like each of these paintings of a tree you know you could do you could do a written or a visual thing you know that that in a particular mood would certain things would stand out in certain colors and and certain right tones and lines yeah Um, okay yeah so it's also i guess the other story is the story of um the many the many channels of a a human being you know the many different moods Mm -hmm. not only the change of the seasons but the, also the change of the viewer, mm-hmm. the viewer's experience. And, and certainly the treatment of every painting is directly connected to my experience. You know, I think when you try to make a comment on nature, you make a much more um, powerful comment on yourself than mm-hmm. on nature. Right. So it's, it's mostly about my changes. Yeah. But when I put together those sextets and those quartets that I did before this, they're different images. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I think um, occurred to a viewer was to make up a story. They're they're very narrative, they're like storyboards. Mm -hmm. And so having these different images in sequence leads the brain, Mm -hmm. I think, naturally to tell a story. It's like, oh, there's the scary house, and there's the thing, and then there's the boat and the river, and... You know, you start saying, oh, he went here, and then she went there, and then they met here, and you make up this thing. I don't know if that happens with, the, with these. Did you want that to happen with the sex tests? I or think did I you did, yeah. yeah. I think I was really interested in that, in the way the viewer has agency mm-hmm. in the realm of meaning and the creative act of creating meaning. Mm-hmm. Or co-creative. Um, co-creating meaning. Yeah. Did, you, um, did you pick images where you saw connections, or did you try to work against the connections and force the reader to, to reach more? No, I saw connections. They weren't necessarily rational narrative connections. They could have been associative and you know, emotional or, or having to do with my personal history. Right. But I think... When I look at 
at 12 or, or 16 of these pond paintings, I don't go to that place of narrative. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's another interesting paradox because the, the paintings are depicting the passage of time, but they're also a study in stillness mm-hmm. and staying in one place. Right. And um, what, what is the story but I mean, there is a built-in narrative in a sense of what changes, right? What changes, which is, I mean, it's like juxtaposition well, lots of, and change. orange and green, we move into deeper greens, we've got... Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying when you look at them, don't More you think that's what I think I'm looking for, although oranges. although I'm not sure I'm the best viewer of art. I love the foggy day ones. Because I have such a story mind, but, I, but I'm looking for what changes. Change. No, and not just what changes seasonally, but also what changes... As, as far as I'm able to suss it out in terms of technique or in terms of mm-hmm. color. Or... Yeah, it's intriguing the artist on that <laughs> day as far as craft. Right. Well, so it could yeah. be that the meaning of this body of work is that, hey, things change. <laughs> in fact, wow, we've, just titled, yes. we've just titled this entire exhibit, Hey, Stuff Things Change. Things Change. So, you know... <laughs> That was a lot of work to get to that <laughs> platitude. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's such an over. We one can spend a whole lifetime grappling with the hey, things change, right? Yeah. I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we deal with that? So I can see us sitting in a in this temple, looking at this art and going, "Hey, things change." Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of a celebration of change. Um, or it's a it's an embracing of change, but even further it goes. I, I don't think I've thought this yet, mm-hmm. but I think I'm thinking it now that it, that it goes to um, change as subject matter mm-hmm. uh, being of primary interest, mm-hmm. and I, and I think I have come to that at, at this at my old age now. After painting for thirty years, I, I think at your that prime, my prime. I think I'm more and more interested in that that um, process as subject, mm-hmm. and less and less interested in subject as object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like okay, you know, there's El Capitan and there's Half Dome. And, why don't you fly around the world and paint all the most amazing beaches in the world or find all the most amazing volcanoes in the world? You know, that kind of endeavor, mm-hmm. which people do, and it's and they make a great book, and it's like, cool, you see it on a coffee table and flip through, it's like, wow, there's all these volcanoes, so cool. But on the other hand, there's something about all of those different subjects that, that di- uh, dilutes or diminishes that underlying subject of change. Mm-hmm. You know yeah, because you're hopping around. The other thing I just want to point out before we leave the idea of change, not that we, well, maybe we won't, but is that they also, it also returns. So, right? it's, so it's, it's a circle. It's a circle, or yeah. maybe it's a spiral, but right, it, I mean, right. it comes back. to the, So it doesn't just change. Yeah, so what about New that? ordinary world. But, <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, as, as you talk about change, I, I, I'm interested because there's perspective shifts where things haven't actually changed except for your perception of them. Yeah. In and story. I mean, in story theory in particular. Just in general, but I just haven't gone through I just went through a fair flying class. I finally finished it. It was fantastic. Uh, if anybody's afraid of flying, check out the show notes. Um, but you hear over and over, it's safe. 
It's safe to fly. It's the safest thing to fly. But most of us don't know why. Yeah. I just went through this entire like two weekend course where we talked about all kinds. Of, got to grill a pilot, two pilots. We got to go into the maintenance area. We got to go do all these different things. And having that information, it was like now when I think, oh, that same sentence, it's incredibly safe to fly, actually is radically different, right? And so it isn't that the sentence itself has changed or the fact of the safety has changed, yeah. but there's a perception, yeah. a perceptual change. And I feel like that's kind of what you're alluding to with, with your constraint here is that there's, the viewer has changed, I think, probably over time. Yes, Right, and and I th- and maybe this gets to an even deeper level where we're really looking at reality and who creates it and how's it created, or that it is created. Mm-hmm. That we are actually creating the world as much as we're seeing it, because we have such limited uh, equipment. You know, mm-hmm. we've got these this tiny. We can see whatever it is, seven hundred nanometers of ultraviolet radiation and we call that light and we say oh we see the world we don't see the world we see this tiny little tiny sliver of this vast spectrum of of uh, electric of radiation which we think is visible just because we happen to have eyes that see it Mm. and on and on I mean we're extremely bizarre limited um, apparatus and we're walking around making sense of everything with what we've got. Mm-hmm. And, and so from some point of view, reality is mostly us. Mm-hmm. And if we shift, like you take this class, reality changes. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, congratulations, you now have read this book and you wake up to a different world. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and so then it's like, well, maybe the inner working is is m- more significant than the outer working. Well, and the blog is sort of the place you, you grapple with and document some of those interchanges and thoughts about the craft and this process. Can you talk about the writing process of writing the blog? Yeah, well, writing is something that I've always been interested in, but I've never done professionally. And... Um, I guess uh, it starts with listening to myself, my inner voice, and um, it, it kind of comes upon me out of nowhere, usually while I'm painting, and then I'll turn on my phone microphone and I'll record a stream of consciousness, and then I'll transpose that into text, into uh, written text and um, verbatim, and then often use that as a starting point. I usually discard 75% of that, but it's a starting point. Mm-hmm. And so I think my writing is uh, a tool to explore and explain my inner process. So from that point of view, I want it to be as intimately connected with that real process as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm not writing narratives, and I'm not um, trying to... Um, separate my, myself and my own context from what I'm writing. You know, mm-hmm. if I was writing about Rome or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I probably wouldn't be doing it that way. Yeah, um, yeah so I, th- I think, I mean, what I've, what I've been doing with these blogs, which it's very new to me. I mean, I've only done, I don't know, 18 of them or something. So it's, it's, it's a new thing. But 
I just, I write something down and then I look at it and I just say to myself, like, what am I saying? Like, what are you saying? And this comes out of my teaching, which I've been doing for 25 years. And I used to get nervous as a teacher. And about 10 years ago, I, I don't know what happened to me, but I had this shift where I suddenly realized it's not about me. It's about the material. And I, I had been focusing on me, my performance, mm -hmm. my articulation, my, you know, my brilliance, my charisma, my presentation, my clothes, you know, my, my hair, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it was, it was like, I've got to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and I just realized it's like, you know what? It's not about me. It's about what I'm saying. So what are you saying? Like, are you saying something? And if it's something, then it's something. It kind of, then that's what it's about. And, and, and I, maybe one of the reasons I'm not posting a lot of blog posts is because I, I don't come upon those that frequently or easily, where you really have something to say, you know? And then if I can find that, then I almost feel like it, nothing else matters. I mean, the writing, the artistry or the flair or whatever, you know, I mean, the, the style, that's not really... It's neither here nor there. Mm. If there if there's something being mm -hmm. said right. that has some some things merit, some gravity, some stimulating, it's something. You know. And and is the painting process parallel to that for you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the painting process is parallel to that. It's like what is real, mm -hmm. what's authentic. If there's something about your relation, my relationship with my subject or with my inner state if I'm painting an abstract painting if there's something about that connection that is uh, a real human experience for me and I can stay in that the painting gives evidence of that I think what what's true about the writing you say you know if I were writing about Rome I might not do that and things don't you've done 18 over over like five months right but um but when they well up but I think in the same way that you sort of put yourself in front of this tree with your materials if you if you sort of put yourself in front of you know either the blank page or your your mind I mean some people do it through walking or whatever that that you create the opportunity for right. more to well up that's right and that's, that's why I'm so excited about going to <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and one of the, um, I mean, it's hard to sort of try to be a writer all of a sudden when I'm a painter. <laughs> you know, I didn't think that through, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's one of the frustrating things about blogs, probably for writers. Like, oh, great, everyone's a writer now. <laughs> Terrific. You know? But it kind of goes back to what you were saying. Like, why do we have a small celebrity group because the good news about everybody being a writer is that the, the people who are the the most authentically right become writers are, are readers you know and so mm -hmm. it I think mm -hmm. it's actually there's a little bit of an, an increase in readership going on or maybe a big one you know because now that people might be reading on their phones and they might be reading different things but yeah I believe that you know yeah. we, we haven't lost the written word by any stretch right. of the imagination and I think people thought we might yeah well one of the things I've considered 
chapters over the last 20 years is that hearing even just a little bit from the painter increases their access mm-hmm. uh, to the work mm-hmm. um, and sometimes enormously and and that's been interesting for me with this blog uh, you know hearing from collectors who have works on the wall and they'll read these things and they'll say it changes the way the painting looks wow. so it gets back to your flying class mm-hmm. you know it's like a flying class for my paintings yeah and so it's <laughs> like okay well you know read the read these two pages and then go look at your painting again and um, like I did this blog on, about the surface of the painting mm-hmm. and I learned that some of the people who own my paintings had never really looked at the surface you know because oh, they were interested in the image and a painting all paintings are both objects and images and you can come into relationship with the object as an object and that's a whole different thing you know it's a whole different relationship yeah then your relationship with the picture that's over there you know it's like looking through a window <laughs> and so you know that's one of the things that I'd like um, one of the functions I'd like the blog to be uh, providing for viewers is, you know, enhancing that that experience of viewing. It's so interesting because I always think it's a shortcoming in me to want those. Like when I go to a museum, I, I read the titles and I read the biographies and I do calculations about the lifespan. And I mean, yeah. I'm really interested in all the kind of stuff around it and the and I mean, I'm, I just think, well, I'm a word well, person. Well, not just, I mean, it's interesting, though, because was in the 50s, wasn't there the whole new criticism that was like, the work right. should stand on its own, and the relationship Especially in to the, literature. Right, and the relationship to the creator doesn't matter, that, you know, the merit of the work is separate from that. Yeah, yeah. What is that? There's a mower, mower going Somebody's by. mowing. That's yeah. all right. It's part of being here yeah, in the studio. It's part of being rural. Yes. <laughs> but I think it also, there's something about um, having that desired connection. I think, you know, going back, I think that's one of the things we all try to do. It's like, I, I'm moved by this image or these words. I want to know about the person who created them because I'm feeling a sense of affinity. Yeah. And I think that's also part of what's happening with people wanting to know what you're thinking about your process mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's also an entry way, a kind of like it's like a threshold you can step over. Um, maybe it gives you... Uh, it reduces your anxiety. I mean, art is so loaded. Mm, you know, it's yeah. it's connected to history and Western civilization or world civilization. And whenever you come near a cultural expression, I think these days especially, when multiculturalism is such an important idea in our society and we're thinking so much about, especially the dark side of cultural diversity and um, oppression, etc. Lack thereof. Yeah. <laughs> lack thereof. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you get into a room with a painting, it's kind of like all that stuff is there. Right. And, you know, and especially if it's something really edgy. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you know, you go to a European city and you walk into a room and you see a naked woman that was painted in the 17th century. It's like, is this okay? I mean, <laughs> I mean putting aside the painting, it's yeah. just like... Um, and I really got sharpened in graduate school when I was, I was in graduate school at the height of postmodernism and my first critique, uh, I had the 
the, the department come into my studio. I had a cycle of six paintings. And they spent the entire time talking about whether or not it was okay that I was painting. At all? Or? Yeah. At all. Uh. So it's just kind of like, oh, okay. You know, here's this white man of European descent, you know, fact that I was Jewish gave me a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of cover but still it was like so is it okay that you're painting mm. and I kept saying well can we talk about the paintings mm-hmm. it was like well maybe but the, the real question is right mm. the ground below that so um which is all to say I think there's a lot of intimidation and mm-hmm. I think I think people are pretty skittish about just sinking into a sensual experience when they come in front of a work of art mm-hmm. and giving them some context and some orientation and giving them some human connection yeah. can be like a threshold they can step over mm-hmm. and go into that and say, mm-hmm. okay, okay, you know, I'm just like you and right. this is okay. You know? <laughs> well, I just, you know, going through uh, SF MoMA and, and looking at things and feeling completely disoriented, like hey, like, I don't understand. And I think sometimes, like, if I look at pictures, like, we had, you know, they had a, a Dorothea Lang photography exhibit concurrent with, like, this piece that was Michael Jackson in bubbles, in his chimpanzee bubbles, in, like, white ceramic and gold. And, Jeff Koons. And yeah. I was like, I don't understand. Like, that, I, I didn't understand it. Do you know what I mean? I just, yeah. I wasn't sure what was happening. And there wasn't really enough in the context of, of even the museum to help me get... A framework of how to understand what conversation the artist was trying to have because they didn't have enough of a background to yeah. do that. So, and I think Jeff Koons is a lot about intimidation of the viewer, actually, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or daring the viewer to have a problem with these giant uh, balloons. Mm. You know, um, <laughs> but the last—I mean, the last six uh, decades of art history is pretty weird and it's 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 become more it's i mean it's like a uh, fishbone diagram where Mm. you know it starts with a few streams and it just gets more and more and more disconnected and and diffuse and now i mean there really aren't even isms anymore i mean you can't even say you know even 20 years ago when i was in school you could still talk about isms and group people mm-hmm. lump them schools of thought yeah yeah and um boy who knows now <laughs> i mean you know you go to a, a, an international art fair which i've attended quite a few and this the range you know it's like this creek flood flowing out of a glacier and just opening on some big alluvial slope with mm. lots of rocks and just getting more and more and more until the bottom it's like lace doily it's just wow. it's like a thousand different things and there's something really great about that you know and there's also something um wrong with that <laughs> well, do you feel like they're in conversation with um, each other or do you feel like because that's one of the things like schools of, of, of a, a style or an approach often are in conversation around or negotiation around something yeah and, and, so, and, and I think that's uh, you know largely up to the people involved either mm-hmm. the creators or the observers you know the three of us could grab two things right now and, and compare them and contrast them and almost anything uh, will serve so and it will still be uh, an unfunctioning toilet pressed up against a white wall yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean I I'm 
I think as a painter, I'm interested in relationship mm -hmm. and painting seems to be to lend itself to that particular inquiry because it, it's, it's a bit of evidence. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like a painting, and maybe you could say this about any work of art, but I think um, some works of art are more durable. You know, if you think about it, a performance or a piece of music, you know, it's, it's got that different quality in mm -hmm. time. But a painting gives evidence to a human m moment of life. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if the painting's authentically connected to a relationship, then it's going to give evidence of that relationship and maybe provide you with something that could, you, you know, you could sit with and contemplate and meditate on and it might lead you into that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that set of questions. It is time for our Steal This segment. Steal This? Steal yes. This. It's based on T.S. Eliot's statement that amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. We each share something. Did I talk to you about this before? You, I think, mentioned it. I don't know if I prepared. <laughs> well, I don't think any of us are, frankly. We're like driving up here. Right uh, no, I have some. Oh, Elizabeth is prepared because she's, she's that student. <laughs> Well, I well actually because I want to bring up several things in your in your blog, but we share something that that we've sort of come across in our wanderings, readings, viewings that we want to kind of make our own in some way. And actually, there were there were several things that are really inspirational in your blog, and um, and one of them was you said I I know to keep working as long as I can make something more like its essential self. I know I need to stop as the image begins to move away from itself and become something else. And I'm not sure that I will know that moment, but I really love that as a measurement, say with this novel. And it actually makes me even commit to thinking about what is this, what is the essential self of this novel? You know, and I have written a letter to myself and whatever, but to keep thinking, you know, what is it that this is becoming? What is it that it is already that I, that I love or that matters? And then using that as a mark. Nice. So, <laughs> right. I don't know if you have anything else to say about that that quote. That Adam well, that's a that's a really important concept for me. I hold on to that a lot because I'm always trying to. Um, well, I studied uh, classical painting in Italy for a couple of years, and I got so indoctrinated into the 17th century masters that it took mm. like literally decades to crawl out from under the heel. Mm of comparing everything to Van Dyck or Rembrandt or Vermeer or Zerberon or, you know, like, there's a list of <laughs> six painters who you compare everything to and you always fail. Mm. And so comparing your painting to that level of painting achievement is self-defeating because you usually just overwork your paintings. You're never going to do that. And it seemed very dysfunctional to me. And so I was searching for a yardstick. It's like, how do I, what's, what's my, what are the metrics? You know, how do I decide when to stop painting? And I, I came to that. You know, once I can feel a coherent isness about a work and it's energetic. And you just said isness. Isness. Yes, okay. Sorry. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Isness. No, I just want to make sure that it's clear you said isness. Yeah, like what it is. <laughs> yeah. What it is. Um, and that usually doesn't arise for a while. 
there's a lot of ambiguity around what something is. But at a certain point in a, in a good work of art, I think there is coherence. Mm -hmm. It can be its own coherence. Like in 100 Years of Solitude, crazy stuff happens that doesn't make any sense anywhere but in that book. Mm -hmm. But within that world, there is that coherence. And when you can lock onto that, you can then use that, what you just read, as, as the metric. Am I moving toward, deeper into that? Or am, am I moving to another world with another kind of coherence and another... And it's kind of like, okay, this is the moment where you either say the painting's finished or you say, we're going to paint this thing over mm -hmm. and it's going to be a different painting. And I'm sure lots of writers have written one novel and then edited it into another novel and then another novel. Mm -hmm. and, then a know, short story. You can, <laughs> so, and then a poem. <laughs> yeah, so you pulled that line out and it's a very core to my whole way of thinking about working. And, and you... Do you, do you have a feedback a feedback from other people as part of your process anymore? No. And when did that stop? When I moved to Occidental. <laughs> <laughs> and was that a big change? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sucks. Oh, you don't uh, like it? I don't It seems really so freeing like in a way, though, because you go to that point where you say, is this, and someone else comes in and says, no, I think this should be blue. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I am periodically... You know, my work is seen by people and I get feedback and I love it. But And do you go in and change it? Sometimes. But in but um, as a sort of normal daily thing, I, I'm I'm pretty much on my own. I use the mirror a lot. Mm. And um, like show the art I look at my paintings in a mirror, Excuse which me. is an ancient uh, um, technique. Mm. And um, hmm. I turn them upside down. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that you know look at them from a great distance take pictures of them and look at the pictures alter the pictures and look at the alterations you know so I I, I achieve levels of distance. objectivity or distance through technical means right um, but yeah I mean if I had some great painter next door who would come over I'd, I'd like that mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm just going to say for our readers that, that there are equivalents for that in writing, which include taking time off, giving yourself some space from it so you go back to it, and it seems like somebody else has written it, which is great, reading it aloud, and sometimes recording it and listening to it, and then changing the font. So you look at it, you can, it looks visually different. Mm -hmm. So those seem somewhat equivalent. Mm -hmm. What are you going to steal? Steal this. Um... Well, actually, I'm in the middle. The other piece that I need to do is work on my lookbook. So I've been reading about sort of visual storytelling and different aspects of that. So I think um, right now I'm just sort of interested in learning about that. So I don't even know if that's like stealing so much, but I think, you know, I had a friend in one of my screenwriting classes who was also an editor. And you could tell, like, you didn't have to look at her name or anything. You knew she was an editor the way she dealt with transitions was amazing and the way she wrote about them so I'm wanting to dig more deeply into the visual storytelling and uh, bringing that back specifically into the screenwriting mm -hmm. so. Adam and well I just went to the Bonard show that just closed at the Legion of Honor I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw that um, 
at the catalog. It's it it was seventy paintings of, mm. and he's one of my favorite painters. And yeah, I was I just again blown away. I've seen I've seen large collections of his work a bunch of times, so it wasn't new in that way. But um, I think the couple of things that I came away with this time, one of them was a just an uncompromising commitment to the whole painting. I mean, he, if you look at the surface of his paintings, he was clearly working on the whole painting all the time. Mm. And there was no fetish, there was no darling, little darling moment and down in the corner, mm. you know, where he had obviously gotten all caught up and was licking up these little things and blurring these edges <laughs> and making it all perfect. It was more this sense of completeness and wholeness that is just pervasive. And then his color is mostly emotional and energetic. And he is just fearless in, mm. in the face of a um, discrepancy between the color and nature that one might see normally and the color in his paintings that one can feel. Mm. Um, and his wildly expressive color is oddly naturalistic uh, in his best paintings. I mean, you, you, he almost makes, na he, he almost, he expresses nature more effectively through this kind of uh, interpretive, um, I don't even know what to call it, just this creative use of color that, that is uh, all his own. And, yeah. So you, you really see a, a painter who is not betraying himself in any way in those works, and yet at the same time always staying connected. I mean, mm. you, you don't feel like he's just caught up in his own trip. You feel like he's always staying connected to the things he loves, which is what he painted. And, mm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners how to find you, how to find your blog, how to find your art? Yeah, it's just my name, Adam Walpert, W-O-L-P-E-R-T. So you can go to adamwalpert.com. It's my website, and you can click in the blog in the menu. Mm -hmm. There's a gallery you, there. There's a gallery, and if you Google Adam Walpert blog, you can just go to my blog. It's a and we'll word, put it in the show notes, too. <laughs> yeah, this is really fun. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful. <laughs>